Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. As we try to get through yet another wave of this pandemic, we're looking for anything that can help us fight COVID-19. So when pharmaceutical company Pfizer came out with a pill that does just that, a lot of people got really excited. The drug, called Paxlovid, was approved by Health Canada in mid-January. Now it's starting to be distributed across the country. But how will it actually help us control the pandemic? We all want a savior, you know, from this current wave, something that is that magic elusive bullet that can just get us out of trouble and can save everybody. And we know in this pandemic, nothing is as simple as that. Carly Weeks is The Globe's health reporter, and she's going to give us a reality check on the impact of this new COVID-19 treatment. This is The Decibel. Carly, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. To start off, can you just walk us through how this new drug, Paxlovid, actually works? So this is an antiviral drug. It's actually two medications that are taken together, and uh, essentially it works by stopping the virus from replicating. So that's why it's essential that it's taken early on in the infection. So very soon after you start developing symptoms, you want to stop this uh, in its tracks before you get to the point where the sort of severe illness has set in. And what is the window of time exactly when you have to take this medication? So they're saying basically when you start to develop symptoms, uh, that's when the clock starts. So, you know, the symptoms begin. Um, and ideally, I think some Health Canada scientists uh, were telling us in the briefing, three days is the most ideal time frame, but, you know, probably unrealistic for a lot of people. But five days is really what you're looking for. That's, you know, you have a very good shot of reducing severe illness if you do take it within that five day window. So within that five days, you need to basically have the onset of symptoms, get a test, learn your positive, get a prescription, get the treatment in hand and then start taking it. And how effective is it? It works really well. Uh, so I think the often cited figure is that it resulted in an 89% reduction in hospitalization. Hmm. So essentially what that means is in the clinical trial, they had a large group of over 2,000 patients. Uh, they divided them up. Some patients received these two treatments and then the uh, other group received placebo. And in the treatment group, there was, I think, less than 10 patients that ended up going to the hospital in the placebo group, it was nearly 70 people. There were multiple deaths in the placebo group and none in the treatment group. Uh, so you can just see from those figures, you know, it's a limited trial, limited in size and scope, but obviously very promising. Hmm. What has Health Canada said about who should be taking it? The drug is approved for anyone 18 plus, but Health Canada, the Public Health Agency of Canada have have advised, you know, who sh really should be getting it. And the priority access across the country is going to be for people who are at high risk of hospitalization and death from a COVID infection. Often cases, these will be people who have compromised immune systems. And on the other hand, then there's also, we know um, a lot of seniors are at risk. The Public Health Agency of Canada, for instance, I think used the, you say it said that people who are 80 or over are most at risk, if, especially if they're not up to date in their vaccines. Um, you know, provinces like Saskatchewan announced that they're going to have priority access. I think the age cutoff starts at 55 plus, and that's for people who are going to be more at risk for hospitalization and death. 
Okay, so people who are more at risk, obviously we want to give them a, a better chance of not getting so sick. Is there anyone who, who should not be taking this pill, though, if they do have COVID? Well, there's a number of people who couldn't or shouldn't be taking it because of drug interactions. And that's one of the caveats of this drug is that there are lots and lots of drugs that people are taking that mean they can't take this drug because they'll interact and potentially cause uh, some complications. So one of the most commonly cited ones are blood thinners. There's some heart drugs, epilepsy drugs. There's a whole host of medications that if you're taking them, you're not going to be a candidate to get this antiviral. Uh, so again, that will leave a lot of patients out. Um, and we know that you know the older you get, the more likely it is that you are taking multiple medications. So the people who are going to need, you know, priority access, they're at higher risk already. They may not be able to get it because they're also on these other pills that are keeping them well and preventing them from having other sorts of health complications. The other group that we can, I think, speak briefly about who should not or is not going to be getting access to this medication are people who are, you know, young and very unlikely to become severely ill or hospitalized. Um, and so I think that for people who sort of assume, well, I'm going to test positive and I'm just going to take this pill just in case I'll get it from my doctor, that's really not going to happen. And we're still at a stage of rollout where even people who likely are at heightened risk might not get access because they're not at the highest risk. Okay, so it sounds like this medication is actually for a very small part of the population then. What about supply? How much of this medication do we actually have in the country right now? There's 30,000 courses of treatment, uh, and the treatments are several pills taken over the course of five days. Uh, so that's not a whole lot. Countrywide, it's being divided up per capita, but the access is going to be very limited. Um, by the end of March, I think we're getting another 120,000 courses of treatment in Canada. But again, that's not a whole lot. It's certainly better than nothing. It will help some people. And, and then we'll start to get a better sense of how the rollout is going, some of the hiccups with the logistics on the ground of making sure people are actually getting it in hand, because I think that's another complicated part of this question here. Um, so similar to what we saw with, you know, the early rollout of vaccines, it, it took a little while for things to get rolling. And there's such a clamor for these things around the world that, you know, we're, we're again in that situation where everybody wants a limited supply of something and, and we're simply going to have to wait. So you said it's taking a while, I guess, to ramp up production. Is that the reason why then there's such a shortage, like a lack of, of this medication in places where we'll need it? I think that's one of the reasons uh, combined with the fact that there is now, especially because of such positive clinical data, there is this you know, global demand for it. We have contracts signed for, uh, you know, to get a certain number of doses and things like that. But again, when everybody is after the same thing, you are going to find that the demand outstrips the supply. Let's say you are someone who are part of this group that Health Canada has said should be given priority for the drug. What do you actually need to do then in order to get it? Yeah, that's becoming clearer by the day. So if you um, have symptoms and you need to, you know, get tested, um, Teresa Tam, the country's chief uh, public health doctor, has said people should not need to get a PCR test and confirm that diagnosis before getting this medication. A rapid test should be sufficient in those cases. Um, so basically, it's this race against time to get the test, 
get the health provider sort of on the phone, getting that prescription sent to a pharmacy, then actually getting it in hand. So you can see it's such an amazing, great thing to have an innovative treatment, but the logistics on the ground are complicated. It's complex. And so those kinks will have to be worked out. Yeah, because it, it seems like almost like a two-stage process. You have to figure out how you're getting your test because you need a positive test uh, in order to get this medication. And then you need to figure out actually how to get the medication then. Exactly. Yeah. So you need to uh, do all of those things and, and keep in mind that we're talking about people who are, you know, sick and they're at high risk. They might be a little bit afraid, of course. And at the same time, um, I think this is where we need to also raise issues of equitable access to these kinds of treatments. Um, the Public Health Agency of Canada raised in its briefing when the drug was first approved that, you know, we need to prioritize access for people living in rural and remote communities and areas, places where there might be, um, you know, higher rates of uh, severe outcomes due to illness or maybe higher rates of chronic disease and, and less access to medications, less access to like primary care and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, the people who have a solid internet connection and can sit by the phone and they have loved ones around them who can go pick up their medication, um, they'll be in good hands. It's, it's those other uh, maybe marginalized groups who might be left behind and we need to worry about those people and figure out a way, a uh, pathway to get the medication in their hands too. It sounds like there's only a few segments of the Canadian population who will qualify for the treatment. There aren't many doses available right now, and it may be tricky to actually get your hands on it if you do qualify. Can you help us understand then how this drug is going to help us manage the the current Omicron wave? It likely is not going to be a huge help right now. And that is, it sounds like bad news, but, you know, it is Again, with the you know, same with vaccines being developed so quickly, it is remarkable to even have this treatment in hand right now. We all want a savior, you know, from this current wave, something that is that magic elusive bullet that can just get us out of trouble and can save everybody. And we know in this pandemic, nothing is as simple as that. There's individuals who will benefit from this, but in the broad scheme of things, this is not going to be what turns the corner of the current wave. I think what's going to turn the corner is, uh, you know, all of the different measures that we've been doing and, and the fact that, you know, we seem to have reached a peak in certain parts of the country where cases will slowly start to go down. This is going to be more of the helping us with the longer term management of this disease going forward. The good news is, on a long-term basis, this should be a huge help. It will help hospitals. It will help people. Um, and so long-term, this is going to be a, it should be a very big win. This drug was approved in, in mid-January by Health Canada. Would it have made a difference in this current wave if it was approved a month ago in mid-December? Like, would that have kind of changed the game a bit? Perhaps. And I think that there, there are, have been a number of experts that I've spoken to who were wondering where that sense of urgency was. They felt certainly that, you know, the FDA in the United States had already approved it. We could have moved faster. And, you know, even if the difference of several weeks meant that it could have saved more lives, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would have lessened the brutality of this wave across the country, you know, and saved every, you know, all of the provinces that are engulfed in cases right now. But on an individual community basis, you know, it, it likely could have helped more individuals on the ground. This drug was submitted to Health Canada in, I think it was the very first days of December. The fact that it was approved, you know, just over a month later, a month and a half later, you know, is remarkable. 
But in the current times of the pandemic, you know, when a week is basically a year, I think that there are valid questions to be asked about those levels of urgency, about the timeliness of those responses. Um, and, and because we're not out of this pandemic yet, hopefully we can apply some of those lessons to, you know, future vaccines, treatments that come online um, and, and really get things out the door much quicker. Mm-hmm. Do we have a sense of how this will fare against further variants? Like, is there the possibility, I guess, that another variant could emerge and this drug becomes less effective, like we've seen with with the vaccines? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think anything is possible. You know, I think one thing that should raise levels of optimism is that, you know, these particular two treatments that work together in combination, um, they were not studied in the new Omicron variant, but they appear to work very well against it. And we know how transmissible this variant is. We know how different it is from Delta, how many mutations it has and how it's able to evade vaccines and things like that, although vaccines still protect us against severe illness for the most part. So that does uh, raise levels of optimism that it can work for future variants as well. You've mentioned that the the main objective of this drug is, of course, to reduce hospitalization and, and people dying from COVID. That's the goal of vaccination as well, of course. Is one more effective than the other at actually doing this? I'm so glad you asked. So this treatment is in no way a replacement for vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of debate right now that's happening. Uh, a lot of people who are who are pointing out and uh, sharing, you know, graphs and charts of fully vaccinated or people who've had two doses, people who are ending up in the hospital, ending up in the ICU. And that is true. People who have been vaccinated are ending up in the hospital. For the most part, they tend to be older. They tend to be very chronically ill. Unlike previous waves, those people seem to be recovering a little bit faster, for the most part, not everybody, um, and they're at less risk of dying. Still, when you look at the group of people who are unvaccinated ending up in the hospital, they overall tend to be younger. A lot of them have no prior or any other underlying health conditions. So we're talking about younger, healthy people. So when you think about your chances, if you decide not to get vaccinated and you're just riding on this treatment, chances are if you do get infected, you might not even qualify right now. I think when people started hearing about this pill, it it seemed like this could really maybe help solve all of our COVID problems. But from everything you're saying here, it sounds like this is really just another tool in the proverbial toolbox to fight COVID. Is, Is that fair to say then? That's absolutely the right way to characterize this. Um, you know, this pandemic has taught us many things. And one is that no, no measure alone is enough to save us and get us out of this mess. So it's not just about wearing a mask and keeping your distance. It's about the Swiss cheese model, which a lot of um, experts say we keep forgetting about. We keep saying, well, I'm vaccinated, so I don't need to wear a mask and I, and I don't need to keep my distance and I can, you know, send my kids back to school without masks. It's going to be all of these measures working together because nothing is perfect and you need to put everything up, you know, like the holes in Swiss cheese. You need to take all of these different slices and put them all next to each other so that all of the different holes are going to be caught. So if you're if you're wearing a mask, but the mask is not going to be 100% effective, then you're also going to have better ventilation. No measure, whether it's vaccines or treatments or masks, are enough on their own. We have to work all of these measures together to reduce the spread, to keep people well, and to get us out of this once and for all. Carly, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this today. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. 
Tasha Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.